This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today, a very interesting episode. We've got Jens von Bergman. He's a data analyst and creator of mountainmath.ca. We've had Jens on the program before. He's More a, than once. He's more than once. Fantastic. Really, really into the data and always a super enlightening show about the city. He's a very interesting guy, like moved to Vancouver 10 years ago now. And he said with some modesty that he didn't believe this. I truly believe he's like a leading voice right. in kind of the housing debates that happen in the city. And he's such a smart guy. So it's so great having him back on. And really, I mean, what led to us asking Jens back on the show is he did some interesting work around kids in Vancouver right, and Metro Vancouver. And I guess maybe we won't say anything more about it, but basically the entire conversation is kind of, that's the anchor of the conversation. And it's not super, it's a little depressing. Let's, well, let's put it that way. It's depressing. Not, but, not the conversation, but that the facts uh, that he brings up, the stats. But for me, the one thing about talking to Jens, and again, it's been since 2019 that we've actually jumped on a call with Jens, which has been way too long. But I always feel like I come out of the conversation, it like reframes how I think about the issues in Vancouver, right? I think this lens is a really interesting one in the debate for why we need density. And it leaves you going like, yeah, I want to, I want to push for this. I yeah. want to make like, cause you know what the alternative is. And it, it seems to be a terrifying one. The other thing that's fantastic about this show is we talk a lot about challenges for not only affordability, but for the development community. And I think that's another thing is he's got real solutions. Yeah, like I actually, I, I feel like I was, <laughs> I was almost saying like Jens, when you're running for mayor, which I don't think is his cup of tea. Like, no, I don't, I don't think, think I don't think he's a politician, <laughs> but he's grounded in data. Yeah, that's a certainty. And he's thought through these. Yeah, you know what? Let's let's let Jens do the talking. Let's let the conversation because I feel like I'm getting excited about this one. So it's uh, a fantastic episode, a great conversation, and if you're interested in Vancouver and uh, real estate. This is not one to be missed for sure. Without further ado, Matt, let's cut to our conversation with Jens von Bergman. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. 
And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Marcon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Jens von Bergman. He is a data analyst and creator of mountainmath.ca. And of course, past guest, fan favorite. How are you doing, Jens? I'm great. Thank you. How are you guys? Good, good. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time, Jens. We were looking this morning. I don't think we've had you on since COVID, if you can believe it. Before COVID, yeah. Well, that could very well be. It's been busy. <laughs> it has, it has. Uh, and of course, we should note mountainmath.ca, but you're also a prolific tweeter, I would say, producing a lot of interesting data on mountainmath.ca, but then tweeting about it and the and engaging in the the conversations on Twitter that are always interesting to watch and not participate in if you're, if you're Adam and myself. But uh, yeah, people should check you out there. Yeah, I guess I'm known to to tweet at times, and um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe Jens, for people who didn't hear you on the show previously, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, sure. So I moved to Vancouver about, I guess, eleven years ago now, maybe almost twelve, and I've quite enjoyed living here. I've been uh, lucky in that um, I have housing figured out. I moved here from Calgary, where I profited from a rise in property values, where you know housing is cheaper, but also was getting more expensive, which then helped me uh, with a down payment here for a beautiful condo that I very much enjoy living in. So that's basically me. Um, the other thing that I did with coming to Vancouver is I retooled a bit. I used to be in the mathematics, teaching and doing research at the university. And uh, now I do different things, which is mostly doing data analysis around housing, demographics, and transportation in Canada. So I have various tools that I've developed over the time that I use a lot for this purpose. Uh, one is Census Mapper, which is a platform to allow people to view and easily access census data. And uh, that's also how I access census data a lot for analysis purposes and a variety of other tools that scientists that can and CMHC data that just make it really easy and smooth to get data and analyze it. So that's basically me. And Jens, were you interested in, and I mean, I guess actively engaged in kind of housing demographic analysis all the things that you're kind of known for right now when you lived in Calgary, or was that was that something you kind of got into in Vancouver? Yeah, no, not at all. In Calgary, I was pretty much, I was sort of engaged in transportation. I mean, I grew up in Germany. I've basically cycled all my life to get to places for transportation. I was, you know, late getting a driver's license. It was just my way of getting around. When I grew up, you know, never really had all that much money. That's how I traveled across Europe. That was sort of something that's really important to me in terms of just the freedom to move around. And that was challenging when I moved to North America. 
and it was definitely also challenging in Calgary. And so that was where I spent some of my free time on, on advocacy and trying to make stuff better. Coming to Vancouver, cycling was better and is has been getting a lot better over time. There's still lots of work to be done if I compare that to um, Europe. But um, here, really, my interests have shifted to housing, which has been, um, it's just very interesting and quirky of how things work in Vancouver. And I kind of got sucked into this, the housing part. Interesting. So, the, so it was moving to Vancouver and kind of seeing the intractable problems that we face as a city that, that has led basically to you being one of the most respected voices in, in that debate. That's kind of crazy. I think that's probably an exaggeration, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it definitely has. I mean, it's something there was a fascination I had early on with just sort of the insistence on single family homes and just the abundance of teardowns that really got me curious. And kind of the first thing I did there was, was really looking at teardowns on why that happens. Um, I just found that fascinating of, um, sort of this this cycle and, and I did some work on teardowns and I think I was on this show actually on this right <laughs> on the teardowns yeah you were actually that was the first time we had you on yes you know that initial thoughts that I had a couple of years later developed into um, an actual um, you know more detailed um, data story and then a, um, a research publication on this so yeah so I slowly slid in there but um, the demographic data the census data was always a big part with census mapper sort of driving me in that direction. It's funny how these choices sometimes drive you. I mean, I developed this product like Census Mapper, um, being fairly green on census data, but I just felt it needed to be, it's important data needed to be more accessible. And as it did become more accessible, it also moved me in that direction. And so I think a lot more about demographic data these days. A final question about the, tell us about yourself, Jens. But, uh, you know, one thing that strikes me about the story is, you know, you lived a certain way, I'm thinking with cycling in, in Germany, came to Calgary and saw kind of a, a lack of infrastructure there and kind of advocated around that. How do you think living in, in or coming from Germany and your experiences there and then via Calgary have shaped your understanding of Vancouver? Yeah, so actually I came before Calgary. I was in the U.S. for a while. So that's where I went for graduate school. And that's also where I spent uh, teaching at universities for a while. And it's, I must say that Calgary was definitely a, a move up. It was in some sense also a conscious choice to select Canada as a sort of a good mixture between Europe and uh, the U.S. But cycling in the U.S. was definitely worse in every place I've been, even compared to Calgary and uh, many other things that sort of bothered me um, in, in ways about the U.S. I found just much, much healthier in Canada. So I was, I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to make that choice and move to Canada. And each of these places, of course, shaped me in some way. I mean, Calgary is also a great place to live. I do miss it still for some aspects. It, it just had, um, it also had a, had a really good life to it. But uh, it gives you, like, moving through these different places and also having lived in Asia, uh, spent quite a bit of time in uh, Taipei, for example, in Taiwan, you get very different perspectives on transportation, on housing, just on how cities work while living in them. And I think that has strongly shaped my ideas of, you know, that things could be different. The fact that we have 
you know, basically 80% of our residential land reserved for low-density housing is a choice that we make and that we um, sort of double down on every year as we keep this going. And um, that's a choice that other places don't make. And so that's the lens through which I view these things. And, and we want to definitely get into that, Jens, but maybe as kind of a launching point in thinking about the data The 2021 census uh, shows many neighborhoods in Vancouver losing kids. Right. What what story does this tell about about our city? Yeah. So, you know, in my mind, when we look at the city, cities change. And they change no matter whether we intervene, say, with a physical form or other aspects of the city or whether we don't. Right. So people move. People get older. All these things means that the city in 2021 is different from the city in 2016, right? So we've added housing in some places. Um, We haven't in others. People have gotten older. People have moved. And all these processes combine. And, you know, sometimes you want to go back and say, hey, what we've done here, is that good or was that bad? And most of the time we try to have some kind of metrics to measure this. But most of those metrics are ambiguous. Right. So population has grown. Is that good or bad? It really depends on your perspective. But uh, children is sort of interesting in that way that almost everybody would agree that having children is good. That's an important part of the city. And when we lose children in whole in large areas of the city, then maybe maybe that's a problem. So that's sort of why I like this metric of looking at, say, children under 15. It really simplifies things. And if we look at it over long time periods, just to kind of get rid of short-term trends, and we look 2001 to 2021, so that's 20 years of time. And looking over this, we see that most areas of the city have lost children. I mean, overall, the city of Vancouver has you know, lost about 2% of their children over this time period. But in many areas, that's much, much higher. And that's pretty much the low-density areas. And so, of course, we can ask ourselves, well, why is that happening and, and what's really going on here? And I find I'm really fascinated by just using children as a metric because I find it very simple. It's a very sort of simple, intuitive idea of how cities change, of how we can illustrate how cities change and how we as citizens impact this. I, I think it's such an interesting way to look at it, just because, as you said at the outset, like everybody can agree that something feels off when a city is losing kids fairly dramatically. And it does seem like, as I understand, it charts to the type of housing that is allowed or built in in each neighborhood. Right. So I think, you know, when when we can look at this, we can ask several questions. We can ask, why is this happening at all? And then we can ask, you know, we can look at where are children growing, where are they declining, and how do all these things play together? So I would say it's less a question about the type of housing. It's more about just adding housing, or at least housing that has two or three bedrooms. The key in Vancouver is, though, that we can't really add housing with single-family homes, right? So we are kind of built out if we don't, say, do things like we dramatically reduce the minimum lot sizes and frontages so that we can build more single-family homes on the same area, um, which we haven't done. So if we kind of keep that part constant, then the only way 
we can add homes with two or three bedrooms is by building multifamily denser housing. And that's pretty much the only thing we've done, right? So we haven't touched these rules about single family. We've added laneway houses, suites, maybe duplexes, but we're very timid in how we do this. And it's not enough to stem these sort of demographic and economic pressures that have um, led to the reduction in children in these uh, low-density areas. So the only place where we've been adding children is where we've added denser multifamily housing. Uh, but the key there is it's not about the form of the housing. It's just the fact that we add it. So, so can we talk about the areas? It's pretty clear, I think, the, the neighborhoods for people listening that are losing kids, uh, single-family right. neighborhoods. Can we talk about in the city of Vancouver, where is gaining kids? And then also kind of a larger uh, snapshot of Metro Vancouver, where, where the kids are going or if they're going anywhere in Metro Vancouver? Right. So, so there are two things there. The one thing is, just to start off, I want to distinguish where children are going versus where they are. So in this kind of process, we're really just looking at where there are snapshots in time about the number of children of a certain age group. There's, of course, a process also where children move or families move with their children. And um, that's sort of another process that lays over top of that. So children get born, but also children move. And these two combine to look at, you know, how many children do we have in a given area? So if we're looking at the neighborhoods in the city, it's fairly obvious that it's sort of the low-density neighborhoods that have lost children the ones where we haven't added housing. So there's not a problem about them being low density. There are also some higher density neighborhoods, maybe where we haven't added housing, those have lost children too. And what's going on here is sort of there's a number of processes that drive this. For one, people live longer. And especially the baby boomer, which is a large cohort that is getting older, they live longer. They like Vancouver and they continue to live here, which is great. But what that means is that when suddenly the older, the, so the population gets older on average and, and they're still staying in their houses and, and occupy housing, there's less housing available for younger people. It's, you know, there's no, if, if, if we don't add housing. And this effect has been quite strong. Right? So these demographic effects where older people stay in Vancouver and why, why wouldn't they? But we haven't made space for young families to accommodate this. The other sort of demographic effect that is quite strong is that Vancouver hugely attracts people around the age of 30, young professionals. So these people come into the city as the central part of the metropolitan region. But we as a city and as a metropolitan region have decided that the city of Vancouver should grow slower than the rest of the region which essentially makes the city more central and increases that pressure, if that makes any sense. So we basically have decided here to make our city more exclusive by growing it slower than the overall region. So relative to the region, Vancouver is becoming more and more exclusive and these pressures build. So if you look at the change in the age pyramid um, between 2001 and 2021, what you see is that in 2021, the population over 50 increased strongly, but also the population around 30 years old increased. And what that means is that, you know, the, there's basically a drop in the other age groups, which is the children and, you know, people in their late 30s and 40s. 
And the people in their late 30s and 40s, we, we are getting children later and later in Canada, and especially in Vancouver. That's where the that's the parents of the children that are missing at, at the bottom of this. And so, you know, that hints at the third process that's coming into this, which is we have a declining fertility rate in BC. So in the 90s, BC used to be about the Canadian average in terms of how many children a woman would have on average. And that has changed quite dramatically. And BC is now the lowest province in Canada in terms of fertility rates. Right. So, and in particular, this is very strong in the bigger metropolitan areas like Victoria and Vancouver. Like in Vancouver, we have, I think, now around 1.09 children per woman. That's the, the total fertility rate. So basically, that's looking at, you know, at each age group, what do we expect, uh, how many children typically people have, and then, then compute the total fertility rate. So that's how demographers deal with this. Mm-hmm. So we basically have very few children coming. And the fourth process that we get here is, is purely economic. People have been getting richer in Vancouver. Incomes have been rising very fast and wealth has been rising very fast. And richer people consume more housing. They will opt not to rent out a basement suite. They will basically over, be overhoused or remain overhoused for longer, not downsized. Having extra bedrooms is nice if you can afford it. So um, that also puts pressure on the housing stock because it's not getting used as intensively anymore as it used to be. So these kind of four processes lead to this decline of children. And the only way that I think is reasonable to counteract these things is to build more housing. You know, the, the other option would be to kick out certain people, which um, seems rather heavy-handed. In thinking about that, Jens, so if I understand then, if an area basically densifies, then... So if if we build it, they will come. Basically, the kids is that is that what the data yeah. suggests? I think that's very clear. So if we're looking at the areas where we've added a lot of children in Vancouver, sort of in the central parts, that's Olympic Village, that's Yale Town, Coal Harbor downtown areas, parts of the West End where we've added housing, the River District, Joyce Collingwood, uh, Marine Gateway areas. There is this little triangle at. 33rd and Arbutus that I find really curious where there is a low rise, maybe four or five, six story apartment buildings and a rental building that is also full of families with children. And so those are the places where we've added and UBC, of course, where we've had it just a lot of multifamily housing and it's teeming with kids. And so these are the places where uh, we've added housing and that have really shown this. We see this show up in the Canby Corridor too, in some of the later years now, the 2016, especially the 2016 to 2021 period. Um, we see some parts of course, and you know, along select C2 zoned areas. So along some of the arterials, the commercial buildings where we've allowed um, housing to go on top. But mostly it's, it's through rezonings of how we've added significant amounts of housing that would you know, be enough to really show up in the census data as as a clear signal. So it sounds to me, Jens, that one of the byproducts of, I guess, nimbyism or, or, or just not moving towards density is Vancouver seems to be trending towards being a beautiful retirement community in a lot of, in a lot of ways. 
what what's the risk of of this if if that's an accurate way to see it? Well, I think you know if we decide that you know we actually don't care that um, the number of children is declining, we're saying you know Vancouver we want to grow it slower. It's becoming a more central and exclusive part of the region. Um, it, it, that's our point of view. Maybe because we think that certain aesthetics that we are used to about the low density housing or maybe our dislike for higher density housing is, you know, is a competing concern that we value more, then um, of course we can go that route. I don't think that's, that's the Vancouver that I would like to, or the direction I would like Vancouver to move into. But I, I think there's um, a real contingency for this view. And, and just thinking about that, like there is, there seems like the debates are like there's 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 not the consensus that you'd assume like the the one thing about this specifically about the children it seems indisputable that zoning in some ways has created pockets that are basically dying or or becoming retirement areas for for wealthy vancouverites but i guess my question is how do you see this playing out? Because it does seem like the narrative has shifted since we've started having you on the show since say 2016, 2017 or whenever it was. Notably, David Eby seems to be a proponent of more housing now uh, as opposed to kind of focusing on demand measures. Are we moving in the right direction? Do you, do you foresee us kind of getting a handle on this? No, I, I do think that's right, that there has been a shift. I'm not sure if... Um you know, there's. I think it requires a lot of effort and thinking to to do this, right? So one part is um, if we can diagnose this as a problem of saying we need more housing. There's still a big question of how we're going to do this, right? And and there's many options. So we've chosen the sort of Vancouver model or that this sort of the tower podium kind of aesthetics combined with a grand bargain <laughs> as. Uh, Gordon Price puts it, um, where we basically leave single family mostly untouched and move the density into sort of the few remaining pieces, places where, where we have to grow tall. Another option, of course, is, and part of that is being debated right now, is maybe find ways to densify the single family areas. We can add a lot of housing just because the land that they sit on is, is comparatively so large. It's 80% of our residential land base. So you know, we have the six-plex six plex proposal um, that's before council that the mayor put in. Could also allow apartment buildings. Uh, we could allow subdivisions and um, just allow smaller houses. Like we have skinny houses sort of strewn throughout the city where um, that are built on smaller lots than are legally allowed right now that uh, were built before zoning came in. And people love them. People are somewhat attached to freehold, and that might be another way one could complement this. So there are many different options, and history, I think, has shown that in Vancouver, when these proposals get put forward with council and planners and put into action, they are designed in a way to limit uptake because people are afraid of too much change all at once. And this is sort of the story that we've had with laneways, with um, the suites, with the duplexes, where we've had these small, rather timid changes, I would say, that weren't enough really to stem the tide 
um, like the demographic and economic pressures that have led to the reduction in children. So one thing that we need to do is we need to be bold about this to make this move to really reverse this in a meaningful way. And I'm not sure if we are quite ready yet for that. You know, one thing that strikes me is the these plants close to the Burrard Bridge on leased land, like the... Sinak. Yeah, yeah. Like those plants seem bold. I think so. They definitely seem bold and ambitious. And it's something, of course, where the decision-making process is very different, which allows that type of boldness, right? So this is something where the nation that owns this land, it's, it's reserved lands, has voted on where the city of Vancouver has very limited input on how this will play out. And that's where we can see boldness. We see boldness in other parts, too. I think if we look at Oak Ridge, it's a bold vision of what is happening there. If we look at, you know, Heatherlands and also at at the plans in Jericho, that's moving in the right direction. I think the Broadway plan in this last iteration is being a bit timid again of trying to limit the amount of housing that can go into the corridor. But there is some some movement there, but we really don't see this. Uh, we see this on, on select parcels of land, right? but not really in broadly throughout the city. And that's the problem. If it's just limited on a small number of parcels, you know, we get a movement here, a movement there, but it'll be very hard to stem this tide. Jens, in thinking about old plans, you know, the, it's funny because I, we talk to a lot of people about real estate and often it feels like the bold plans result in one step forward and two steps back because it really, it often comes with a lot of resistance from kind of the NIMBY communities uh, when, when we go too bold with housing. Is that like, have you, have you uh, in, in monitoring kind of the housing debate, what are you seeing in terms of perception around bold moves for density? Well, I, you know, I would start earlier. I think there's just, I would say, a lot of motivated reasoning where people just try to somehow argue that we do not need more housing for some reason. And I think I find it hard to believe that anyone, if you ask them, hey, if we build more housing, will more people come? Probably everybody will say, yes, they will come. But, you know, then you get sort of a fall back into this thing saying, well, we should really only grow by 1%. We should manage growth. We should do things slowly. And the, the effect of that is, of course, and that's exactly what we've seen, is that we squeeze out certain groups, mm-hmm. for example, families with children. So, But I don't think that connection is something people make, that when they're saying we want to manage growth, and we want to, say, limit it to 1% a year or things like this, that that really says we want to squeeze out families with children. So these kind of discussions where people question just, you know, very simple things like do we have enough housing, yes or no, and, you know, yes, we have, we need a lot more housing, and, but, but a lot of people doubt that somehow. And, and I think that's something where a lot of discussions get stuck and led astray. And Jens, like, just thinking about the Sanak project and Oak Ridge, I can almost hear somebody saying, well, those aren't projects for kids, right? And, and your, your take is, I, well, let me, let me phrase it this way. What's your take on that? Right. So 
my take is it's simply if you build two or three bedrooms, kids will come. Like we've seen these same arguments over and over again, right? So we look at Yale Town, we look at Coal Harbor. Um, are these projects for kids? You know, you can, yes and no. I mean, they were not specifically built for kids, but they were built suitable to raise a family in areas with great access to, with access to great jobs and amenities and families will choose them. Mm -hmm. So, and I think the same is true for the other projects. We have this idea where sometimes we just can't imagine who exactly are those people that are going to move in. And because of this, you know, we never know that when we build something, but what we do know is people move in, right? Because we have empty homes tax, speculation, vacancy tax. These things aren't going to stay vacant. So people will move in, and I think there's a real tendency of some people that want to control who are the people that move in. It's almost like a bit of a totalitarian tendency. They're saying, well, I can't afford this, or I don't know how this works, and I doubt that people will actually move in, and I want something, I want new housing where I can move in. But again, that I think mistakes how housing works. Housing is a system. New housing is always going to be more expensive and more exclusive. So people that move into new housing aren't the average Vancouverites, right? And a lot of people think like we need new housing for the average Vancouverites, but I, I don't think that's that, that's a you know a reasonable expectation. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020. I love framing it around kids, this whole argument, because it, it seems like, and, and trying to make that connection stronger 
Because it seems so, you know, like such a great argument that if somebody said, not in my backyard, you could say, well, it sounds like you don't like children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, Jens, there's an interesting finding about dogs, which uh, right. we have this enormous dog population in Vancouver. What does that mean for the health of the city, if anything? <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I'm sure there are many theories and I don't have, have too many thoughts on this. Other than, I mean, the observation is that we have more dogs than children in the city of Vancouver. And that's, you know, I, I made this observation and looked up the stats simply because somebody made this observation about San Francisco. <laughs> and I was saying, oh, how about Vancouver? It's about the same, um, the same kind of ratio. And part of that is, of course, is simple demographics where, you know, older people um, are more likely to have dogs than children, than small children. That's a simple, simple thing about age. So as we're aging, we're going to have more dogs generally. But... Yeah, I think I'm not really concerned about the number of dogs. I'm personally not a not a fan of dogs, but I think it's it's fine that they're here and that people like them and have them. But I am a fan of children, and <laughs> I find it sad that that we don't have more of those, and that we've basically that that council and planners has led the city into a city of declining children, and uh, more importantly, that have led neighborhoods into huge decline um, and just sort of set by idly year after year as um, the schools emptied. I mean, it's not like this is anything new, really. We've been talking about this for at least 10 years, the 10 years that I've been here, that there's problems with schools emptying out in the low-density areas, and there's a problem with overfull schools in the new areas where we concentrate all the growth. And uh, we've been talking about it for at least a decade, probably more. And nobody cared enough to do anything about it in terms of planners and council. Right. And just to maybe as a kind of final question along these lines, and then we, we do have a couple other things. Hopefully you have time to, to stick around for a couple more questions. But, you know, one thing that strikes me is, is and I guess it's a, it's a regional story, right? There's this, this idea of Vancouver has a stable growth trajectory. Like we've had developers on, and and one thing that kind of jumps out is the this bedrock confidence that um, the population will continue to grow, and it's almost impossible to build enough housing, especially with the pace that uh, that we're building housing on at this time. And so there's this stable growth trajectory narrative, maybe we'll call it. And then the story that we're telling here is almost feels like a city in some ways in decline. Do I have that right? How, how can we square those? And and what does this look like if these two stories continue moving together? Because does it just mean Surrey just gets bigger and bigger with more kids and Vancouver becomes kind of a a boomer wasteland? Or, or what? how does this, and I don't mean that pejoratively to boomers. You just uh, mean no fun city. Yeah. <laughs> I think those are actually the same story. What's happening here, so... Uh, recently, Nathan Louster and I went on an exercise to try and estimate something like housing shortfall, right? So you're talking about the growth trajectory, there will be population growth, that's one thing. But if you think in terms of housing shortfall, I see two big factors that we can use to, to, um, to, to different mechanisms that we can look at that both add up to housing shortfall. So one of them is just 
I mean, a thousand profile right now, not even in the future, like discarding that trajectory. So one is just the impact on mobility. So on movers, do people on migration, do people move into the region? Do they get excluded? Is that because there's not enough housing or pushed out of the region? And we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that people get pushed out or feel like they're getting pushed out because they can't find housing that is available that is sort of adequate for their needs. It's just not there. And we know basically all housing is used, so there is not enough. And somebody has to go, and uh, people sometimes write letters about this. And the other part is delayed household formation. So basically, as, as people form households, they start to take up more housing when the kid moves out and lives on their own, maybe. Or maybe they live with roommates. And then um, as one step, and then as the next step, they move into their own place. Maybe then they couple up and uh, combine households. But this process, what we've seen over in Vancouver, and especially also in Toronto, is that over the years, this has been delayed, especially in the key years of household formation, where um, the rates of household formation have slowed. And just that part, just to accommodate the households we would expect to see if we didn't have this kind of constraints that constrains people from forming households. And But keep the population the same in Vancouver and just have this. We would need roughly between maybe 80, 90, maybe 100,000 more households, more housing units to accommodate just that. Right. So that's like five years of construction right now at the current pace. So we don't even need new in-migrations. Of course, other things will have to happen to make that happen. You know, if we build that housing, housing probably will get cheaper because suddenly a lot more is available, a lot more choice, and um, that also enables these new households to form them. But um, so these are processes that are really underlying all of this and feed back into the pressures for the kids. If we form households later, we'll have fewer kids. That leads to our very low birth rates that we have in BC. And if you talk about Surrey as the part where the kids go, that's true. Surrey is still growing kids, but also Surrey has areas where kids are declining too. So it's not just that everything in Surrey works out that way. If you really want to know where the kids are, it's Abbotsford and Chilliwack. So those are the, the places where kids are exploding. And actually, incidentally, they have some of the highest fertility rates in the country. They're outside of the metro region. And, um, and, and so you can see how some of these demographic pressures play out there. It's beyond Syria at this point. Wow. So part of that is an affordability issue. Like I, presumably people are having kids a lot younger in, in, in those areas like Abbotsford, you know, generally speaking, right? Like I wonder how much of this has to do with, with who's having kids you know, the type of work they're doing. Like, I, I don't know. It seems like such a, an interesting thing. Right. Yeah. There are other factors that come into play too, right? So we know that if you go to university, you're probably going to have kids later, right? So, so there's a, it's a complex issue. So I don't think this can be just reduced to housing, but I do believe that housing plays a part, uh, a role in all of this. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, it, actually, this you had on Mountain Math a post about. I'm just thinking it might kind of dovetail in here. You know that Squamish housing. This kind of surprised me that Squamish housing is actually 
growing faster than its population? Well, I think that's true everywhere, right? So the the key observation here is that as the population grows older and as people consume more housing, what you do is that on average, the household size shrinks, right? So the number of people per household shrinks. And what that does is it, it means that even just to keep your population the same, you need more housing. Mm-hmm. Or in other words, if you do not add housing, you lose population. And that's the story that we see throughout. So if you look at the low-density neighborhoods in Vancouver, it's not just that they didn't add children. They actually lost population, like overall. Mm-hmm. Right? When you had a house that maybe um, there was a lot of houses where a family with maybe um, one, two, or three kids lived in there, and now you have a much higher share of these houses being occupied by retired people, that sometimes even one-person households, uh, where there's just a widowed person living in there, maybe, in a single-family home. So it's about 10% of our single-family homes like that. So um, so you get these processes that happen. And um, so essentially, uh, what's going on here is that just to keep your population constant, you need to add housing already. So of course, housing will have to grow faster than population. I don't know what's the easiest way to say this, but maybe it's just to say, if you do not add housing, you will lose population. Mm, Right. So, um, yeah. Maybe as a final question, you know, it it seems that rents are going up, seems to be the consensus Mm -hmm. right now, and and the vacancy rate seems to be shrinking. Can we talk a little bit about the vacancy rate and rental rates in Vancouver right now? Yeah. So, I mean, the vacancy rate is something that we only get once a year uh, as an official number from CMHC. And um, that's something that we've seen recovered a little bit during the first year of COVID and then basically dropped back down um, in the second year, last October, when this is always pegged. And we've seen rents, of course, do something very similar. So um, in the first year of the pandemic, we saw that rents, new asking rents on Craigslist actually dropped. And so that's fairly rare in Vancouver, but mm-hmm. it did happen. And what happened, though, that then in, in fall of 2021, that kind of, um, or in, already in summer, that reversed. And you could see rents shooting up again, and, and they went up dramatically. And we're now well above the pre-pandemic levels again when it comes to rent. So these pressures have reversed enormously fast. There are other parts that we've seen in the data that also show or support this sort of bit of a leeway that we had in between early on in the pandemic. We've seen the population estimates from StatCan, where we see a bit of a drop in population in the city of Vancouver. You know, I would I would view these with a bit of caution just because of um, these estimates are you know always funky in small areas and they come with. Um, error bars, but um, I think it's very consistent with other signs that we've seen. But again, I think all of this has reversed quite dramatically and uh, the rents, the vacancy rates all point in that direction. Well, maybe maybe we'll leave it there. But Jens, this has been a, a fascinating and and little bit terrifying conversation, I think, in some, in some ways. <laughs> or uh, depressing. Depressing. Yeah, maybe not terrifying, but it's... Uh, as someone who also really likes kids. <laughs> no, I think there, there are good ways out of this, though, right? So if we understand the mechanisms by which they work, and there's a simple formula that we know to counteract this, which is to add housing, especially two- and three-bedroom units, 
um, then all we need to worry about is how are we going to do this and how are we going to do it at scale, right? Not every two or three bedrooms are going to be occupied by a family with children. You know, if I look at my building, which is mostly two or three bedrooms, there's a bunch of downsizers in there too. There's also a lot of children. But um, that's great for downsizers too. They want that extra bedroom. And that's fine, I think. Extra bedrooms are nice. But we need to eat, add those options and we just have to talk about, focus more on how are we going to add them rather than whether we should or not. So if we can move the discussion to that next level, I think uh, we're going to be in a good place. And, and Jens, just as a final kind of thought on that, ha- have you thought a lot about how we're going to add them? Because one thing that we've been talking about, especially over the last couple of weeks here is, is, you know, we work in the real estate industry. We're all, we're all for the market producing homes. But one thing that you see and, and people are already talking about, you know, we've had one month slowdown in the real estate market and, you know, people are already predicting developers to kind of slow down, push pause on certain projects, especially projects where they bought the land at potentially inflated prices, you know, inflation with thing, uh, building materials, labor. So it we kind of go through these cycles, it seems, where, you know, we have these uh, spurts of demand and building and then kind of everybody seems to pull back and then we right. run into the same issue again right because it's like then demand ramps up and it's like oh we haven't built the housing or or combined with you know projects like when you think about northeast falls creek where you've got these community amenity contributions that are basically stalling plans and projects as well right and I think that's a that's a very good point. So um, you know, there's the general issue that of course, as the market goes up, it's easy to build into an upward market, and that's typically where we see development. Although it's it's quite delayed in Vancouver, partially mm-hmm. because it's just so slow to get something online, which is a combination of two things. One is our focus on big complex projects like a tower versus a sixplex. Right, where it just takes a lot more planning, and the, but then also the approval process is, is endlessly long, and the construction process too. But I think one key part is if we think about what or how does the cost of a new building come about, right? So we have to buy the land, we have to, you know, pay the laborers and the construction materials and build the thing, but we also have to pay the city fees and the CACs. And the CACs, the way I like to think of them is when we upzone land, there are windfall gains. And the windfall gains are a direct measure of the housing scarcity, right? It's how much more people are willing to pay for this privilege of living there when we allow more people to live there than what it costs to build this thing. And so then we charge some of that back as a, as a public good. But we have to remember that this is the scarcity bonus that we are charging as a city. And our goal should be to actually remove this scarcity bonus to drive it to zero. So as a city, we should have the goal to not be able to charge CITs. We should slowly start to build enough housing and at a pace that we don't have to charge these things anymore. You know, we have a moral obligation, I think, to charge them when we, when, you know, the prices are, the scarcity is as crazy as it is right now, but we should drive the scarcity down. And so in a situation like this, the city can go and saying, well, if it gets harder for developers to build, 
that means maybe there is the scarcity is not quite as bad at this moment in time, and we have to lower our CFC expectations right. to make this work out. And if that process is not happening, and uh, it's not, you know, the city, I don't think, has that thinking, you know, that leads to the stalling, and it acts like a ratchet, like we're not allowing prices to fall. And the city needs to get into the business to allow prices to fall. Like we've seen the same thing with the Merck, with a moderate income rental housing project, where market conditions changed so that the inclusionary requirements for those weren't really viable. Planners brought this to council and said, well, we want to change some of these inclusionary requirements to still keep rental projects that have some affordability component built in to keep them viable. And council said no, which basically killed the MERPs. And that means, you know, until rents will go up enough again so that the MERPs become viable. So there was an opportunity when rents were falling for council to say, okay, rents are falling great, so we're going to lower the affordability requirements. Council said, no, we're not going to do this. We'll wait for rents to go up again because I don't know why. Mm, that's and I think that's a really a problem um, when we think about how can housing get cheaper? That's how housing can get cheaper. Like we have those tools, but we have to use them strategically. It's, it's almost insane that we don't. In, in many, <laughs> it seems so logical. It seems so <laughs> logical the way you just framed it. Like it, it seems crazy that the the levers at the city don't adjust for market conditions or anything else. Right? It's uh, it's punitive. You can think of it in a different way, right? So for the city, there's also you can think of it uh, if your primary goal is to keep existing residents happy with low property taxes and keep existing neighborhood character. And this actually makes a lot of sense because what you then your strategy is not to drive prices down. Your strategy is to minimize impact on property taxes and keep CACs high. Mm. And that's what you do. You know, you just wait and you ration out land. By land, I mean or floor space that that you allow. So extra density, you ration it out into the market so that you can charge a lot of CACs, which take up a big part of your budget and reduce pressure on property taxes. If we actually go and reduce our CSEs, what that also means is we will have to um, increase property tax rates right, to make up for it. So there's a real tension about how much we basically tax newcomers by keeping CSEs high versus how much we tax existing residents. And I think some people in council understand this very well. And they are very happy with um, taxing newcomers and, and putting all the load on newcomers. I think we have to have a conversation about how we want to pay for services and, and amenities, right? So you can think of it in two ways. The people that move in there, we can charge an upfront, essentially CAC, which in this case, you know, will probably delay the project until prices go up again. So eventually it'll get paid. We can charge it upfront as a CAC, or we can basically charge it in terms of higher property taxes over the lifetime of the people that live there. So, um, and, and we can decide how we're going to distribute those. But the problem is that if we tax it upfront on newcomers, it sounds sort of easy and good at first. But the problem is that it's a tax that doesn't just keep the new property expensive, it makes every property expensive in the city. So it's very ineffective 
in terms of the tax that we collect. You only collect it on the new property, but it's paid by everybody who comes to the city if they move into new property or old property, and, and the people that collect it are the existing landowners mostly. Right. So in that sense, the CSEs actually don't get collected by <laughs> very effectively. Property taxes are very different because they are paid for by everybody. And um, so it's, it's a very, it's a much more effective way of collecting that money for the city. But it's also a very unpopular way to do it. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's, that's maybe we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there, Jens. But we do have this segment called the Five Wire, five quick questions, lighthearted questions, I should say, to end the show. Can you stick around for that? Sure. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay. So question number one, what is uh, one book you would recommend for our listeners? Oh, that's a good question. So what's a book? Let's just take the one that I'm actually reading right now. It's called Just Housing by Casey Dawkins. And um, I haven't gotten all that far into it, but I got turned on to it by the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. And it really tries to understand what does it mean that we say housing is a right? And how can, how can we, you know, what does it mean for a person who maybe doesn't have housing? What does it mean for a municipality or, or a region that has people that don't have housing? And how can we, what kind of mechanisms can we have to, to ensure this? And yes, this idea of this negative housing tax, his idea is that those people that are comfortably housed, you know, he tries to balance property rights with rights to housing. So those people who are comfortably housed and maybe own property, they have an obligation, like the, the fact that they own property, they, they have an obligation to those who aren't comfortably housed. And so he proposes, you know, maybe one could say raise property taxes or you would say uh, in more technical terms, have maybe uh, raised property taxes, but also tax imputed rent. So things that we don't really do here in Canada. And to pay for people or help people find housing that, that don't have secure housing. Anyway, so I found this book quite fascinating and a lot of interesting ideas that are in the public discussion um, that I don't quite understand very well. And so I want to learn more about the right to housing. On a lighter note, Jens, uh, what have you been binge <laughs> watching lately or your favorite movie? Ah, what have I been binge watching? So I do have a 12-year-old, which means that um, I've been going uh, and binge watching. Uh, we have as a family the Marvel, Marvel Universe right. movies. I can't, you know, I, I don't know if, if that was, is my favorite thing, but doing it as a family has been a lot of fun. That's a that's a great one. Question number three. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Oh, what new behavior? Well, one thing that happened during COVID is that I cycle a lot less. I used to just cycle to places, meet people, do a lot of things that way. And so I've picked up running to kind of fill that gap, which I'd never done before. And it's actually been quite good. So there are beautiful places around me to go run, and I've really, really enjoyed it. 
Fantastic. Fantastic. (laughs) Favorite band or music? Oh, favorite band or music. I must say my music, again, uh, with a 12-year-old in the house, my music taste is uh, is shot these days. <laughs> everything's a compromise. I do enjoy a couple of things that, that my 12-year-old picked up. He got really into NF, which NF. is like a rapper out of Detroit. NF. NF. Um, huh. Yeah. Huh. yeah so, There's a new uh, rapper out of Detroit. NF. I don't, I don't NF. know if it's new. It's new. not that new. It's been around for a while, but... Um, huh. There's a yeah. There's a couple of albums he really likes and listens to a lot, and I quite enjoy them. Um, so yeah, great. And last but not least, uh, I think last time you were on the show, I think I remember your answer. I think it was AirPods, but something you've purchased for under fifteen hundred dollars that's changed your life in the past few years. Oh, I think that's an easy one for me this time. It's new gaskets for my coffee maker to keep that alive. That was a lifesaver. I purchased <laughs> a bunch of these um, just as sort of at the beginning of COVID. And, you know, I'm not regretting it because my coffee maker is working perfectly now. And it's just, I don't know, it's it's a daily, you know, it's, it's great to get my nice daily coffee and know it's always there. And I have some extras in case there are problems. And that, that's been amazing. That's great. All right. Well, perfect, Jens. And and finally, uh, how can people find out more about what you're doing? I think we've mentioned all the all the usual suspects, but uh, anything you want to plug? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the simplest one is probably my blog, where I sometimes um, drop down some ideas. Uh, but usually, um, I try to be very data driven and also um, share. Um, the code for all the analysis that I do in case somebody else wants to look at what I did or adapt it. So that's on my on my blog at doodles.mountainmath.ca. And so that's where I... Sometimes if I have something that I think might be interesting to more people than me that I find interesting, I, I take the time and, and write that down and, and put that up there. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thanks again for taking the time today, Jens. Uh, my pleasure. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Jens von Bergman, data scientist, data analyst, and founder, creator of mountainmath.ca. You know, I've referred some people to mountainmath.ca recently that I feel like that there's nowhere to get great data. No. In in a lot. (laughs) Like, I, I mean, and this is where what Jens and his website are kind of filling, but it's like that void for understanding these questions that you have just about the market and the demographics and and everything else, right? And it's open source. Yeah, it's open source. So you can look and see exactly, not that you and I can look because it looks like- But our engineering clients can. Yeah, exactly. They'll enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, you know what? It's, I feel like it's worth pointing out, right? Like Jens is, it's, it's a specific type of person and we're lucky to have him that will see something about dogs in San Francisco and somehow- Want to answer it. Go, how does that it. work with Vancouver? And like <laughs> creates a code, plugs in the numbers from where, who knows, but right. And he actually generates all this data, the framing of where kids are in the city. Again, 
probably other people are doing that, but he's just, he's developing really, really interesting data sets and it's, it's fantastic work. I, I love also that he kind of stumbled into this role in Vancouver in, in kind of a totally, a totally, it's like accidental almost. And, and the other thing is, is that I always think about this too. I had a friend of mine say, if you were still living in Winnipeg, would you be selling real estate? And I had to really think about that. Like, I don't, I don't know that I would be. I feel like, and I'm not saying anything about the Winnipeg market. Maybe I would. Yeah. But I just, I feel like there's something about housing in Vancouver. I feel like Vancouver. you'd be painting cars. Is that what you think I'd be doing? <laughs> I wanted to be a firefighter. I had the body. I had the, I had the desire. You could have been a contender. Yeah, I could have been a contender. Uh, the, the thing is, I do feel like, I think the point is, yeah. And this podcast, I think is, is a sign of this. The issues in Vancouver around real estate and zoning and land and growth are so interesting and dynamic and complicated. Right. Like if you were, if we were in Calgary, I don't think we'd be engaged in all these questions just about the Calgary market sure. or about the Winnipeg market. Vancouver is very unique in that way. And I think Jens speaks to that because Absolutely. he was talking about cycling in Calgary, but he's, he's become, a, you know, a leading voice in the housing discussions here. So for sure. But Matt, what else do we got for the day? What else do we have for the day, Adam? We have Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, where all things real estate related live. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for synopses or summaries of these episodes, right. including the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, which, by the way, Corey Wright just had on Jonathan Meads. He's the VP of Streetside Developments, which is a Qualico company active in the Lower Mainland. And it was a phenomenal conversation we had with Jonathan Meads. Kind of made me jealous that uh, we didn't get him for this show. So maybe in the future, but great stuff there. We also have the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer with VIP access for residential projects, VIP access for commercial projects, deal of the month, stats before anyone else. Finally, Adam, we have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's available at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We'd also like to thank a lot of people that reached out about a renovation for sale episode that we're looking to set up PCS accounts to find projects, renovation projects. And there is a, it's a pretty easy thing to set up. And I believe Melissa was setting up a number of people. So if you do want to get in touch for PCS, just sign up or send an email to you've uh, also, info you've, at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. We've also recently, recently developed a spreadsheet. So this is the amazing thing about you is you you basically I, recreate, a, you recreate the wheel every time you look at a property. No. Turns out Excel. So now there's actually a calculator easily. It's an Excel spreadsheet. An yeah. Excel spreadsheet. Embedded yeah. code. Yeah. Right, right. And and I uh, I was aware of this process. <laughs> I've heard of these. No, I am uh I'm the type of guy that if I'm uh, if I'm looking at a property, I like to the process You're a back of the napkin. I'm I'm a back of the napkin type guy, but that's uh, that's just me. But Old we do school. have those Excel spreadsheets now, which is which are fantastic. I'm so. using it. I'm it's uh it's been a transition, but I'm using it. Van it works. VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. If you want to talk about that or anything else real estate related, give me a shout at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, which I should say next week. Yeah. We have Ryan Lalonde and Cameron McNeil back in Kokomo Studios. Yeah, from the MLA partners Canada. Uh, at MLA Canada. And uh, 
man, that was a great conversation. We were up here for about an hour, an hour and a half just chatting. I think we captured a, a, a really, really great conversation with those guys. So I'm super excited. Absolutely. Have a good week and we'll be back next week. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.